0: In Luke chapter number 1, look with me in verse number 11 as we talk about two people, primarily Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They would be the parents of the one that we know as John the baptizer. Speaking of Zechariah, it says this. In Luke 1.11, it says that there appeared to him, Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Let me pause there. That is the summary statement of the purpose of a forerunner, to make ready for the Lord a people who are prepared. Verse 18. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay, at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. So these words um, may very well be familiar to some of us, but I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen during this uh, series that we're going to be doing you're going to look at John the baptizer in a way that you never did before. All of us have little pieces of his life, and we know that he is a central figure at the beginning of our New Testament. But a lot of us don't understand just what, um, because we're not familiar with the context into which John burst on the scene, we, we don't really get the magnitude of his life. You've got to remember with me, John the Baptist was called by Jesus the greatest man born of woman up to that time now that's an amazing statement because when I look at John's life in scripture I'm like yeah he's awesome what a great ministry he never did a miracle John chapter 10 verse 17 said John the Baptist never worked a miracle but Jesus said he's the greatest prophet I'm thinking Moses Elijah Elisha what about, what about, you know, David was a great man. And what about Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of the visions and all of this stuff? The Bible is very clear when the Son of God himself says, No, it was John. John was the greatest. And so I want us to be able to get some of the impact on that. It is not so much the supernatural that John, uh, that John did, the main thing that John did was spend his life in intentional separation under the Lord. And then go to the people with the thundering message of God for that generation. His weapon of warfare was his voice. Now, I am all for miracles. I am all for signs. I am all for wonders. I want to see more healings. I want to see resurrection, physical resurrection before I leave planet Earth, and I pray for those things. But one of the things that God is stirring my heart about again is that Jesus Christ said the greatest prophet that ever lived was John the Baptizer, and all John did was preach. He proclaimed the word of the Lord In his generation and you're going to be amazed at some of the stuff that he says but for tonight let's talk about his missional destiny that's what i want to share with you this evening is john's missional destiny so go back up into verse number 11 with me and let's just note something in verses 11 through 14 very simply that there was a move from heaven just look at the words again it says there appears to zechariah an angel of the lord and he's standing at the right hand of the altar right side of the altar of incense And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel. Fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. His name will be John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, let me give you a little context because it's probably been since last Christmas time that you heard anything about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but let's go there for a minute. Zechariah was an old man. Elizabeth, now Zechariah is smart. He says, I'm an old man, and then he uses something a little prettier to describe his wife. And she's well-advanced in age, she's well-advanced in years, smart guy, smart guy. But the point is, is they were long past childbearing years. Most Bible commentators believe they were in their mid 60s, maybe upwards into their 70s. And so obviously the idea of having children had long since left them and I want to take you back 2,000 years ago into that culture and I want you to know there was a whole lot of stigma attached to a couple that didn't have any children. Women were shamed in that day. Part of a popular uh, thought in in many Jewish communities was that if a woman couldn't have a child, it was because she had done something to anger God or she or her husband had invited judgment on themselves. And so there was a lot of cultural, social, and religious stigma that could be attached to that. Elizabeth will even testify later that the Lord had taken the reproach off of her. So let's just say she was in her 60s. For for 40 plus years, she had probably been married to Zechariah. They got married young there and been wanting and expecting a baby. And month after month, year after year goes by and no son, no child. Both of them are from the priestly line of Levi. Zechariah is a priest. That means his whole life is dedicated under the service of the Lord and the, and the commitment to the Jewish Bible. And so he's teaching when he's not serving in the temple. And, and so their whole life and framework was centered in the things of the Lord. And the one thing that they had been calling out for was the one prayer that seemingly wasn't going to get answered. Now, all of us have probably been through seasons where we've cried out in earnest, We've pled with the Lord. we said, God, answer this. It'll be unto your glory. We, we surrender it to you. All we want to do is rejoice in you. And Lord, this thing that we want, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And Lord, we know you love us. And so, and, and, and when those prayers go up and up and up, the answer never comes down. It is a huge test on our faith. And of course, Zechariah and Elizabeth ha- had been dealing with this for decades. And chances are, chances are, their robust prayers over having a child had had faded over the years they understand biology 101 and at this point they can't produce a child both of their bodies not being able to do what is necessary to to conceive a baby and so zechariah and elizabeth are living as old empty nesters seeking the coming of the lord praying serving not being bitter, not shutting down on the Lord, not having hearts that are now closed down because God never gave them what they wanted, but continuing to press in to the Lord in whatever that they could do. But on this day, Zechariah is one of the priests, and twice a year, the priests would be called to go to Jerusalem and minister into the temple. And what's interesting, is, and there were multitudes of priests and different rotating groups that would come in, and this is Zechariah's time to be at the temple, he ministered there for a week. And what they would do is they would cast lots, and those, among those priests that were there, each one would be given a duty to perform that week during, uh, during the temple uh, service. And so, Zechariah's lot found, and he was the man that was going to offer up the incense in the holy place in the temple. Now listen, it didn't get better than that unless you were the high priest who got to go into the holy of holies once a year. It didn't get any better because as you go into the temple, about as close as you can get to the holy of holies is right up there against that veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, and right in front of that veil is the altar of incense, and Zechariah for the first time in his life is getting to offer the incense. It is a amazing thing to happen to this old man, and you only get to do it once in your lifetime if you were priest and this was his time and so he's in there being faithful he's offering up the incense as the people waited outside and prayed and as the, high, as the priest he would also be praying as the incense went up but here's the thing there was a move coming from heaven that nobody knew except heaven and all of a sudden, listen, this is not a fairy tale. This happened. Put yourself in Zechariah's sandals for a moment and recognize this really happened. He's offering the incense. He's doing what priests do. He's in a, a, a moment of worship. And all of a the sudden, there appears at his right hand an, an, an angel. Now, we're not told what the angel looked like. We're not told that he was tall. We're not told that he was glowing. We're not told that he, he looked otherworldly. But all we are told is when Zechariah saw him, it's very It's very tame in the English, but in the the Greek, it's very intense that when he saw him, fear fell upon him and he was troubled. His heart about leapt out of his chest because standing there is an angelic presence and immediately the angel identifies himself and he says, I am here to tell you that your prayers to God have been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, We'll be bringing you that baby boy. Now, we don't get it. Well I mean, I know we don't get it. And I want to be careful here, because we 're all in different stages of life. But a 70-year-old guy is doing his ministry duties. He's been praying, maybe he 't even stopped praying. we don 't know, but he has been praying at some point for years about God, give me a son, God, give me a son, God, give me a son. God, give me a son. And out of the middle of nowhere, the Lord sends, what we'll find out, is Gabriel to show up in the temple at the altar of incense at Zechariah's right hand to begin to initiate a process that would climax about 33 years later with the Son of God dying on the cross for all of the sins of mankind. This was the beginning. Remember, 400 years, not a word from God. 400 years, not a written word, not a prophetic word, not a vision, not a sign, not a wonder, nothing that was coming from heaven to the people of Israel. It was dead silence from heaven. And this moment, though Zechariah doesn't quite understand it yet, this was a moment where undoubtedly there was a move from heaven. Why is that important? Because I love telling you this every now and then. God reserves the right to make you wait and then to do something that'll blow your mind when he's ready to do it. And friends, I'm going to tell you something. The older I get, the more convinced I am that the great rewards for the believer will find those that were not spectacular, that were not impressive, that were not flashy, that are not not well-known, but those who were faithful, trusting, obedient, and waiting. That is where reward is found, not only in the life to come, but in this life now. And so Zechariah, I mean, I guarantee you, he's, he's flesh and blood like us, He had probably thought that prayer would not get answered. And God says, not on your timetable, my beloved son. I love you, Zechariah, but now is the time. Do you remember a couple of times in the New Testament when it refers to the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming in human form? It says, when the fullness of time had come. We understand that there was a fullness of time for Jesus, but there was also a fullness of time for John, the forerunner, the baptizer. Why? Because he had to come before the Messiah came. And so one of the things that I think that we have got to stay fresh in our hearts, because most of your life, most of it, is going to be unspectacular. We live in a Instagram-filtered world where we take the average and make it, wow! And that's not reality. That we live in a world that's neon, 3D, enhanced, and everything around us is supposed to be, whoa! And that's not reality. Most of life is not like that. And so the the thing is, is we've got to keep our expectations fresh. There is something about going through the mundane or, or, excuse me, unspectacular, mundane, ordinary seasons of life. And when they elongate, you know what can happen to us? We will start thinking that's the way it's always going to be and we'll start settling for the status quo. And it's not up to the preacher, it's not up to the intercessor, it's not up to anybody else to keep our hearts fresh toward God, expectant towards God, alive towards God. It's nobody's assignment to do that for you but you. And so Zechariah was getting a whole lot of grace. He gets angelic contact in the holy place in the temple while he's offering up incense. And so God was ready to do something, and now the... The the new covenant begins right here in this little altar, in, altar of incense. Occasion, that's where God started the process that would lead to the mission, the work, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's go down into verses fifteen through seventeen. There was a mission, pardon me. <coughs> there was a mission for the forerunner because now Gabriel is going to explain the mission attached to John the baptizer who hasn't even been born yet. So let's look at this. First of all, I want us to get this. This, It was a mission of consecration. Look at the very first thing that Gabriel begins to kind of unpack for Zechariah after saying, you're going to call your son John. He says this, he says, he's going to be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, this almost seems random. One of the things that Gabriel is doing is he's, and remember, Zechariah is is still standing there trembling. Although he's been told, don't be afraid. It's not like he said, oh, okay, yeah, I'm I'm good now. You're standing in the presence of something you know is bigger than you. And so he's afraid. And immediately Gabriel starts launching into prophetic destiny and the mission that's going to be assigned to this baby that hasn't been born yet. And I find it very noteworthy, especially in the context of those who might be living in a generation of forerunners. The first thing Gabriel hits is the need for consecration in his life. We talk a lot about anointing. We want anointing. We want power. And the Lord says, You need consecration. You need to come apart and be separate. What does it look like for John? Well, first of all, here's the general headline Zechariah, John, your son, is going to be great before the Lord. And the word great is an interesting Greek word it's the word mega, megas. We obviously know what that means supersize. It's big, it's a big deal. And so John is being, uh, Zechariah is being told immediately that John is going to be born and he's going to be significant before the Lord. That means there is divine destiny of not a small measure attached to John's life. And then Gabriel says this, he starts indicating that John's going to live under what we know as a Nazarite vow. He says he can't have wine, he can't have strong drink, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be prenatally filled by the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother. Now, back in the day, I probably would have launched into a tirade against drinking. That's not what was going on here. Listen, that's just where I was. Um, You need to make up your mind about that, and I will give you this. If you're you're getting drunk, it's a sin against God, and you ought to repent, and if you need help with that, let me know, and we will find you help. Beyond that statement, you're not going to hear me say a whole lot about alcohol, but for John, the consecration that was assigned to his life by God through Gabriel is that I don't want anything ever entering into his body that it could affect his faculties. I want his mind, I want his heart, I want his, I want his, his inhibitions, I want to own him, and I don't want anything to warp anything I ever might say to him, everything, anything I might show to him. God wanted John all to himself, and so he is giving him these conditions of, that are commonly associated with the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was you don't cut your hair, you don't touch a dead body, and you can't drink or eat anything that comes from the, the grapevine. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but it was very clear to Zechariah, who would have been very familiar with the scriptures, oh, there's a Nazarite vow beginning on my son that's going to last this whole lifetime. The most interesting part to me is this. Gabriel prophesies or, or proclaims over John, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. It's amazing to me. I mean, friends, think about this. That, there's a couple of different things I could say about this. One, uh, a baby in the womb, God looks at as a life, and it even gives some of the people uh, in the womb the potential to be filled with the Spirit. You're going to remember when Mary walks in pregnant with Jesus uh, six months later, that John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaps, has a little praise fit when Mary walks into the room with Jesus. And so, if nothing else, just know this that God wraps purpose around every life in the womb, and for John, It was going to include being spirit-filled in the womb. I'll give you a little nugget here that God showed me a couple years ago. There is no other family anywhere in Scripture where Scripture highlights that every single member was filled with the Spirit. Uh, Zechariah, before this chapter is over, is going to be said to be filled with the Spirit, and he prophesies over John after John was uh, circumcised. Uh, Elizabeth, when she speaks uh, earlier in the chapter, or Somewhere in this passage, she speaks, and the Bible says she's filled with the Spirit. And I love the fact that father, mother, and son are all Spirit-filled, and that is the context in which this forerunner comes out. This forerunner comes bursting on the scene and 30 years later, and he's coming from a Spirit-filled, consecrated life. Now, I, I I want you to help me with something. Help me, help Billy, help Dustin, help Gabe friends one of the concerns i have as a pastor and i'm going to be unashamedly uh, kind of declarative about this i am deeply concerned generationally that generations that are coming up know a lot about ministry know a lot about anointing know a lot about results but are losing their grip on what it means to be consecrated that means to be set apart intentionally that there are things we say no to There are things we prevent from entering into our lives, our minds, our bodies. There are things that we just don't do because we want to keep the temple sacred unto the Lord. And and we're losing that. I think the reason is because we so hate legalism and we we hate overt traditionalism that we swing the pendulum so far to where we think it's okay to live unsanctified, non-separated lives. And you can't make a biblical case for that. I'm going to tell you something. Days are coming where the challenge is going to be so hot, so hard, so heavy that it's going to be necessary, not a luxury, but necessary for the people of God to be consecrated to God at a level that we presently don't give them much attention to. I hear people all the time, Jeff, pray for me. I want anointing. And one of the things I always want to ask is, tell me about your consecration. -tell Tell me about your life. Tell me where are you going to get that anointing? What, what, what are you, what, what's going to interfere? What's going to impede that anointing? Because I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you, God doesn't arbitrarily fill me with the Holy Spirit. Part of that is conditioned upon my positioning myself to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if, if if a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, same way with the ladies, a double-minded woman, unstable in all her ways, we can't move in and out of consecration because if you do that, you're never going to live a consistently Spirit-filled life. And so John has this assignment on his life, this mission of consecration. Everything he would do would depend on him being consecrated unto the Lord, and I'll show you that before this message is over. Second thing is he's going to have a mission of persuasion. It's a very simple phrase in verse 16. He's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now remember, um, Gabriel's saying this like, Hi, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. By the way, you're going to have a son, and boom, boom, boom. He, he, Zechariah is getting this rapid download of stuff assigned to his son's life. But notice this. He'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's turning their hearts. You know, Israel, especially uh, Pharisaical Judaism, the, the Judaism that was being propagated at that time by the Pharisees, it was oftentimes just outward show with no substance and there was a practice of of drawing near to god with the lips but having their hearts far from him and so the reality was is that it was a very religious time for the hebrew people especially there in jerusalem but that doesn't necessarily mean it was a very spiritual time because what was going to happen is we'll see as we get deeper into john's testimony he burst on the scene And he confronts the most pious, moral, religious, conservative leaders of his day. And he says, you're all a bunch of snakes. He calls them to repentance. He breathes fire out 30 years after this occasion with Gabriel. John comes and breathes fire out. Why is he doing that? He's trying to turn the people back to God. When a generation slips so far away from the Lord, whether it's theologically, whether it's morally, whether it's culturally, whether it's whatever it is, they usually all get wrapped up together. When a generation is so far from God, they don't turn back to God with subtle hints. You you don't kind of just gently, gently get people back to God when a whole generation, like John's generation would be, is so far from God. Not only the the Jews living at that time, but also the Romans and Roman paganism everywhere and immorality all throughout the empire. John was the guy coming before the king and he's clearing out the debris field. He's coming, not moving debris out of the pathway, but moving boulders out of people's hearts with the strength of the prophetic word. And he's coming so strong. And, you know, in, in John's day, it was, it's not going to be any better received than it is in our day. You know, I, I tried my very best to be nice on Sunday, but those messages were intense, man. I, can, I wanted to get out of here. I was like, can I leave? I mean, it was just, it was an intense Sunday. But those things are necessary. Why? Because you don't, you don't, you don't blow a boulder out of the way you got to crash it. you got to tear down strongholds. We need to get our voice of intensity back in the church. I appreciate all that God uses and has used, but I'm going to give you something here. The closer we get to the coming of the king, the more intense we need to be about recognizing that it is on our generation to declare the strong message that time is short and the king's not coming back to play patty cakes with us. And meanwhile, unfortunately, and I, I don't—I I really please don't misunderstand me here. There's so much going on in the church today that is nothing more than just business practices wrapped in, in ecclesiastical stuff. And it's not power and there's no truth and there's no calls for repentance. It's, it's helping sinking people feel good as they're going down. And there's got to be a return to that, not just in the pulpit, by the way. It's not just for the hired guns. It's for all of us. And so for John, the result was going to be people, and we'll see this in, a, in probably next message, that people started turning back to the Lord. But in the, the common belief is, no, you, you preach like that, you speak like that, you witness like that. Um, people are never going to come to the Lord. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Some of them will. No matter what we preach or how we preach or what we proclaim, whether it's sweet and soft and nice and sugar-coated and saccharine and all of that stuff, people don't always get saved with that either. So the, 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 the fallacy of, oh, well, we got to preach it a certain way because everybody will get saved if we do that. No, no matter what or how it's preached, there's always going to be people that say no to the Lord. But those whom God has prepared, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, they're going to repent and believe the gospel. But the church has got to make it clear. And unfortunately, friends, that means we have to preach hard sometimes and proclaim hard and witness with, uh, you know, we need to say it in love, but we we still need to say it. And the result will be that God will use you and God will use me to turn many of his people to him again. But here's what's interesting. It's not just people vertically turning. Look in verse number 17 because it was also going to be a mission of transformation Speaking of John, Gabriel says this, he will go before the Lord. He's going before him. He's referring to the Messiah there. In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready, here we go, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, you gotta put yourself in Zechariah's place, man. Zechariah, you know, he's got the incense thing. He's like, he doesn't even have time to collect his thoughts and all of a sudden, Bible verses are coming to life in his mind as Gabriel's talking. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, Malachi 4, all of these testimonies are are, are coming from Gabriel's mouth. But Zechariah is a priest and he's remembering the verses and he's realizing in these moments that all of these prophetic verses are attached to the forerunner who comes before the Messiah. So as he's processing the fact that he's about to be a, a father for the first time in his 60s or 70s, he's also saying if, if the forerunner's coming, then the Messiah's coming. That God hadn't forgotten. That God hadn't broken his covenant. That God had, had not cast off Israel. And so Zechariah is getting hit. Oh man, I'm going to have a son, but my son is the forerunner? And, and, and that means the Messiah is near. Now friends, listen. I don't don't know how to put that in a way that you and I can just say, whoa. It would be the equivalent of somebody with heaven's authority speaking to you and saying, the next baby you have will be used of the Lord right before the second coming. And you're looking at that baby on day one and you're thinking, that means something big is going to happen in the next 70 years at the most. And all of a sudden, poof, heaven's reality starts intruding on our earth non-reality. And everything that made like a big impact on you, you were worried about that morning, you're not worried about it anymore. Everything that you're all tied knots and spiritually constipated over and you're just like, you know? and, and, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm free, I'm free. Why? Because I've just had heaven's reality just com- just land on my heart. So I think one of the things that I desire is, Lord, I don't need Gabriel to come and tell me this. I want to live with the anticipation that Jesus Christ is coming back in my lifetime. That's my personal belief. You can disagree with me. I, 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 I want to live with the anticipation, the expectancy that the Son of God is returning to planet Earth in my lifetime. So I want my life to matter. I don't want to play church. I don't want to do religion. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste my time. And and, and listen, I don't want to waste any time that could be spent magnifying Jesus and staying real and fresh about this thing called covenant that we have with him. And some of the end results were this, is that the hearts of the fathers were going to turn back to the children through John's ministry. Why would that be? Well, let me tell you what happens when a generation loses hope. In a hopeless generation, in a hopeless community, among a hopeless people, when you have babies and and you've lost your hope that God's ever going to do anything and you're looking around and you're oppressed and and Roman authorities are everywhere and you know you don't have freedom and you're just another kind of uh, a servant to Rome and God's not doing anything and he hadn't done anything in 14 generations before you, when you look at your kid, you, you don't have anything to offer him. You're like... Yeah, the, the remnant would have, but the majority of the Hebrews in that day, they're going to be like, yeah, man, do the best that you can. Rome's, Rome's on the throne. Caesar's ruling. And, you know, it's, it's not a great catalyst for a parent to impart to their kids hope when the parent doesn't have any hope. And so the hearts of the fathers turn away from their kids and it's survival of the fittest. It's like, yeah, go work the fields, go work the fields. You'll get a wife one day, you'll raise your own kids. I'm going to die and you, you do what you do. And there's nothing heart to heart between parents and children in a hopeless generation. And that was Israel. But John's ministry was going to declare and thunder, no, there is hope. The day spring is coming. The dawn is about to happen. The light is coming. The yoke is going to be broken. The Messiah is going to be appearing. And all of a sudden, that ministry was going to wake up. John's an alarm clock. John is on an alarm clock before the sunrise of the first advent of Jesus. And, and when, when, when John starts speaking, fathers' and mothers' hearts come alive. And they begin to believe on behalf of their children again. When I see kids in our generation that... um. You know are just living in ways that are destructive living in ways that are absent of any purpose it's usually it usually doesn't just begin with the kids it's a pass-through it comes through through parents and I know a lot of good parents did a lot of good jobs and their kids just didn't respond it's not it's not an every case situation but broadly speaking and generationally speaking there are generations coming behind us that have no hope because our generations have taken our eyes off of the thing that we should be hoping in. And so the hope is, hey, try to be popular on all social media. You're as as valuable as the last post that got the most likes. Um, And if you can, get an education, get a job, and listen, if you really want to go for it, make a ton of money and try to be beautiful. Try to get a rock star spouse. And, you know, try to be impressive if you can because that's kind of what life's about here in the United States of America. And we wonder why kids are like, Pfft. do you know why they're hopeless? Because that's about the best that's being offered to them by the vast majority of Western population. And, and meanwhile, the church has gone soft. The church has muted herself because we, we don't want the public to be offended with us. I know this is tough, but this is forerunner context here because the world that John was being born into is not very different than the world you're living in right now. And what I'm saying through this whole series is God's calling some people to step up as forerunners. God's calling and anointing and and assigning levels of consecration that people haven't recognized before and the light's going to go off and you're going to be used as a, a voice of alarm to a slumbering generation. You're going to be persuading people like John was. Your, your ministry. And, and don't think of a platform ministry. Come on. Come on. We're all ministers. M- most people never be on a platform. Listen, ministry is wherever you are because you're a minister. So I've never been ordained. No, but you've been called. You've been assigned. That's the way the Lord views you. We are all ministers. And so your ministry may be your family, it may be your school, it may be your work, it may be your neighborhood, it may be everywhere you go. You know, we we don't need greater opportunities, we need greater awareness of the opportunities that are already here. And so we can actually move in the power of the Lord, in the spirit of the Lord, and through our faithfulness, the the hearts of one generation will turn back to the coming generation. And when when our generation starts believing in the generation coming, and starts pouring into them, I'm going to tell you that will be radically um, transformational to the culture and to the church. Now, let me go on a little bit further. Very quickly here on this. I always say that and I never live up to it, but theoretically, very quickly here. There was a miracle in a family. Let's see how Zechariah responds, because he's been waiting his whole life for this meeting, and he totally fumbles it. Zechariah lost his voice, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, um, by the way, these are the last words he would speak for nine months. How shall I know this? I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, and by the way, this is a heavenly angelic rebuke. I am Gabriel. You're a priest, you might have heard about me. I've been around a while. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Now, go home and just ponder that statement for a while. You know, he wasn't making it up. This is, this is real stuff, by the way. This is a real angel. He is still around. He is still doing the, the assignments given to him by God. And he says to, to Zechariah, 2,000 years ago, my name is Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of the great I am. And I was sent by him to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, there's there's no way of getting around it. Zechariah got in trouble. He got in trouble. This was a pivotal moment in what we call salvific history, in the the plan of God bringing salvation to man. This was a pivotal moment. Zechariah is like me. He's like you sometimes. We pray and pray and pray and pray. And when God starts to do it, we're like, really? Are you serious? You mean you're actually going to do it? Thankfully, God is gracious to us. Zechariah didn't have a whole lot of latitude. I guess he was old enough. He should have known better. But he, he, he expresses doubt instead of delight. By the way, when uh, Elizabeth finds out, she expresses no doubt, just full delight. That's kind of the way it is with men and women all the time. Women just typically seem to be able to embrace the goodness of God at a level where men are trying to figure it out and control it. I'm preaching to myself here. Amy has so much greater faith than me. I'm telling you. If you, you you can you can ask me to pray for you, but I'm gonna tell you if you really want to get your prayers answered, she's right here on the front row. That lady has faith, and you know I'm like Zechariah sometimes. I'm like, well, I pre- by the way, Gabriel, where were you 40 years ago when I was praying this? Yeah, I am in my 70s, and so Gabriel just gets heavenly on him. He says, I'm a messenger of Yahweh. This is supposed to be good news to you, Zechariah. You remember that phrase that your grandmother taught you? If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. That didn't come from your grandmother. I think it came from Gabriel. He's like, you can't say anything good. You're not going to say anything at all. Woo! (laughs) Nine months, nothing. (laughs) When he finally does speak again, it's amazing. And we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, I, I would just say this, just by the way of practical application. I'm working on this. so I'm confessing a lot of my struggles tonight, but I love you guys, and I, I, I'm assuming I can trust you with this. Um, God's really convicting me personally about how much negativity escapes these lips. And it's, it's, it doesn't, it's nowhere, I don't think, it's not like robust or, ah, it's not that kind of stuff. It's just so easy. Uh, discouraging words, or you know, discouraging words over myself, maybe discouraging words to others, always pointing out the problem instead of just really being quiet and waiting on the solution. And I, I just am getting more and more convicted that I probably ought to just be quiet more often. And I'm going to encourage you with this. I'm, I'm, again, I'm speaking to myself too. Um, there's nothing wrong with just being quiet, you actually don't have to say something all the time. Uh, you, you can have an opinion and keep it to yourself and and oftentimes that's a really really good thing and so the the world doesn't need more criticism Now, I'm not undermining what I just said about we need to be truthful and we need to expose and we need to do all this stuff. What I'm saying is I'm talking about casual conversation where we're constantly dripping out negativity out of our mouths. And we wonder why we don't operate with robust faith. We wonder why we don't see breakthrough. It's because oftentimes we're like Zechariah. We're praying out of one side of our mouth for breakthrough and the other side of our mouth we're expressing doubt. And so Zechariah, I think Gabriel did him a favor. It's like, Zechariah, you're just not in a good place right now. Let me just, let me just shut you down for nine months. Let me just, just shh, shh. It's like you're a buzzkill. I mean, this is supposed to be good news for your family, and you just need to be quiet. So Zechariah lost his voice, but this is what's cool. The people received a sign. So look at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. Remember, there's, he's, he's doing ministry. There's people outside wondering where the priest is and zechariah was didn't show up and they were waiting for zechariah wondering at his delay in the temple and when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and he remained mute and when his time of service was ended he went to his home now let me just seize on so you're at the temple that day you're there to worship a sacrifice being offered and you're waiting because you're you're used to the the liturgy, the way things work, and the priest hasn't shown up. And you're like, what's going on? This is supposed to be pretty normally you know, rapid kind of in and out kind of stuff. And when he does come out, his eyes are wide open. He's got a look on his face of astonishment. I'm not being ugly here. Nothing's coming out. He's flailing his hands all about. The Bible says he's making signs. Now listen, it had been 400 years for those people and their forefathers since God did anything, and they recognize he's seen a vision. God's doing something. The priest has had an encounter in the temple. Their parents never had that testimony. Their grandparents never had it. Their great, 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 no, for 14 generations, nobody had said God gave a vision. And that was the generation that it happened. And so as Zechariah stumbles out of there, this encourages me, you don't have to be eloquent to be used of God. Ze- Zechariah couldn't say a word, and the people were saying, ooh, God's moving through this man. Something's happening here. It's awesome. And so we think we have to be, you know, super fluid and skilled and, you know, and all that. All, sometimes all you got to do is keep your mouth shut and look overwhelmed by the Lord. And, and, and God, God will use that. And so these people received a sign. So immediately there was a sense, kind of an embryonic form, and, and it would soon be birthed that the Lord was moving. This is a move from heaven. And So come down into verse number 24 and 25. So the people received a sign. Zechariah lost his voice. Elizabeth receives a child, verse 24 and 25. So it says he goes home, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And, you know, not to be goofy here, but it wasn't like with Mary. It was normal means of human reproduction that Zechariah and Elizabeth conceived this child. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. From among the people. I love that, man. There's just something about her, her that my heart just, like, yeah, awesome. She'd been waiting her whole life for this. She didn't doubt. She just starts rejoicing, praising the Lord. I don't know how Zechariah communicated it to her. I mean, I need to be careful here, but, you know, he's got to explain to her what's going on and, you know, they got to do their thing and stuff and it probably been a while. And, and so the baby is conceived by natural means. And she rejoices. Now watch this. Remember how I spoke about John's life being hidden and consecrated? Remember from the womb, he was going to be set apart. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when he's conceived, it's just a subtle picture, but Elizabeth withdraws for five months. That you continually see in John from the prophetic word of his birth coming to Elizabeth conceiving, even to the fact that they named him John and the people, you can read earlier in the chapter, the people pitched a fit because that when, when you name a child in that day, you name it after somebody in the father's family and there was no John in Zechariah's family. But it's almost as if the Lord said, I want John all to myself. Zechariah, I love you, but I want him so consecrated unto me from the womb I don't want culture, because you're going to see by the end of the chapter, John's whole life was separated even from the culture out in the wilderness. His ministry was not in the city. People ran out to the boondocks to hear him preach. Why? God was constantly keeping John hidden, consecrated. Just a a word, maybe it'll land somewhere. Sometimes when God removes activity or people from your life, it's not a bad thing. Sometimes it's his way, if we'll listen it hurts sometimes and it's, it's not always easy, but sometimes it's the Lord's way of saying, this is a season that I am making it all about me and you. I want you to myself. Elizabeth goes and hides out for five months, doesn't go into the market, doesn't go out into the community. And, um, a month later, in her sixth month, by the way, her relative, probably a second cousin, a little girl named Mary, comes up with this amazing tale of an angel visiting her, and I promise I'm a virgin, uh, but I am pregnant, and Elizabeth's like, I got you, I, I know, I know, let me tell you what's going on with me. Isn't it awesome how the Lord, I mean, listen, this is like, this is a, a hinge of history, and the Lord takes an old lady and a virgin girl and says Gabriel go speak to both of them we're going to now initiate the plan that I've had in my heart for all of the ages look who God chooses so it's awesome to me that um you know we we look for ridiculous qualification and who's going to be great in the kingdom I think we need to just start thinking more like like the Lord And just never, ever look on anybody without assigning dignity to that person and honor to that person and hope on that person. Maybe you're raising a child or a grandchild that looks just like a lost cause. Don't you dare give up on that child. Don't you dare. Nobody would have said it'll be Elizabeth and Mary when God breaks through to Israel. Nobody would have. That's exactly who he picked. So I've I've got to finish here, and let me finish with John, because up to this point, it's it's been so much about his parents. But here's this mantle for John that he was going to wear his, his whole life. It was a short life. He probably died before his 35th birthday. And so much was packed into his life. But look at the mantle, and all of this is going to come back up as we go through these four messages on his life. But let's talk about his prophetic destiny. So here we are. John's been born now. In this scene, we're going to move down to verses 76, 77, all the way through verse 80. So John's been born eight days after his birth. The Hebrew uh, law taught them to circumcise the boy. And so this is at his circumcision. It was kind of a, a big deal. And they place him in Zechariah's hands, who hadn't talked in nine months. Zechariah had just written down, his name will be John. Zechariah wrote it down and when he expressed that obedience and faith in the plan of God he got his voice back and he just leaps he launches in to prophetic declaration he hadn't spoken for nine months this stuff's building it up in him like a volcano and as soon as he gets his voice back he starts prophesying over John and he goes through some of the covenants and then when you get to verse 76 this is what he said and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. That's forerunner, the one who runs before the Lord, forerunner. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Here's the prophetic destiny on this little baby boy. He's just been born, eight days old, and his daddy gets his voice back. And and, and by the way, this is where it says that Zechariah was filled with the Spirit. And he's spirit-filled, and he's declaring God's destiny over his eight-day uh, son, and he says, you're going to be the prophet of the Most High. You're going to go before the Lord. So he automatically knows, by the way, Elizabeth, excuse me, Mary had stayed with Zechariah and Elizabeth the two women talk Zechariah didn't have anything to say because he couldn't yet but during that time so Mary's talking about what Gabriel said to her and Zechariah is just taking notes man he's like I'm getting it okay Mary's going to give birth to the Messiah my son's the forerunner my son you are the prophet of the most high God going before the Lord in Mary's womb who's going to bring the people to salvation through the forgiveness of their sins Boom, heaven just hit earth with a wake-up that the people had been longing for for centuries. And it was happening, and the vast, there's only like 10 people in Israel that knew what was going on. God's doing this thing without fanfare. He's not trying to get a marketing team on it. He's doing it subtly, thoroughly, intentionally, And he's bringing it to the most simple people who won't steal the glory, won't won't strut around like they're the stuff or anything like that. He just chooses these simple, um, nondescript people. And Zechariah says, the assignment on your life, boy. By the way, it is highly likely that Zechariah never lived to see any of this. He's already an old man, and it would be 30 years before John ministered. So Zechariah is prophesying things that are going to happen after he's, he's going to have to watch it from heaven. And he understands that salvation has come to Israel. The breakthrough was coming. The king was going to be born. Now, just think with me here for a moment. So all of this intensity, it was still going to be another 30 years. God can give you a word And he can, without apology, call you to wait on it. You hear me? It, It doesn't ascribe to him any weakness, any unfaithfulness, any dismissiveness, any unconcern. He just doesn't operate by our calendar. And so the prophecy was true, but there was still a normal process. John had to grow up. John had to learn the ways of the Lord. John had to hear the Lord for himself. Jesus had to grow. The Bible says that Jesus grew in wisdom. Go wrestle with that one. Go, go home and wrestle with that, that, how the omnipotent, excuse me, omniscient son of God grew in wisdom. So there's a process to the prophecy. And sometimes we want the word, we get the word. It's been 10 minutes, where are you, Lord? And friends, we gotta grow up in that area. Faith is, 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 um, purified through waiting and if we can't wait we really just don't have as much faith as we think we do and so all of this is going on look at John's preparatory calling I'm out of time verses 78 and 79 okay so his ministry was going to bring knowledge of salvation to people because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you understand what's happening here? Nobody said stuff like this prior to this in, in, in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth. All of a sudden, everything coming out of Zechariah's mouth is hope, 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 hope. Victory, breakthrough, forgiveness, mercy, peace, light shadow of death is gone our feet are going to hit the the paths to peace and all of a sudden what's happening because they're recognizing that the king the messiah the anointed one is coming and everything else begins to make sense as it was in his first coming let it be in his second coming when you and i will live in the expectancy of the come because listen he is coming again some of you are like yeah man but i'm old i'm I'm going to be out of here when that happens. Well, friends, for, for the generations coming behind you, don't rob them of that hope. Point them to him. Speak of his return. Magnify him. Rejoice in him. Keep their focus on him. Zechariah is making the most out of his newfound voice. He is prophesying and praising, and it's just awesome. And then verse number 80, and I'm done. John's intimacy and hiddenness. Now watch this. This is all that is told of us about John's boyhood, his adolescence, his, his, his early adult years, all that is said is verse 80. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's not, it's not an unimportant statement. He's a bit of a mystery. We don't know anything about him. He's got very old parents. I'm going to hazard a guess here feel free to disagree with me. My guess is that his parents died while John was probably a young teenager, and it would seem, based on what we read there in verse 80, that the rest of John's days were spent, again, in separation, consecration, and hiddenness. He never had a job. He didn't live in the city. We're never told of him having a home of his own. The Bible says that he lived in the wilderness. He was an ascetic. That just means that he, he no fanfare. He, he knows the prophetic words spoken over him. Zechariah would have told him. He even put on garments that are similar to garments that the Bible says that Elijah wore, the camel's hair. He, he ate what God provided day by day. It wasn't, doesn't sound great, but he ate bugs. He ate locusts. I like, I like commentators that try to pretty that up. They said, no, it's actually the locust bean, and he would be able to boil the locust bean and have like a little vegetable stew. I was like, come on, man, just let the Bible be the Bible. He ate bugs. John was in the wilderness, and he ate crickets. That's just the way it is. And for dessert, he went and found a beehive, and he ate honey. That's his life. And he lived out there. By the way, he will reference this later. He, He will say that the Lord spoke directly to him about Jesus the Messiah. John's testimony will be later on probably the third message will be that this is he that the one who sent me spoke of saying the one on whom the Holy Spirit abides is the one who will baptize with fire so in the wilderness he's got the ear he's, the Lord's got his ear he's getting his assignment he's getting his boldness you get a person, a man or a woman, a young person that'll stay in the presence of the Lord, it'll cure them of the fear of man. And when he comes out of the wilderness, actually, he doesn't ever come out, but somehow the people go out to him. You know there's an anointing on somebody when people are leaving the city, walking out into the desert to get yelled at by the preacher, and they're, they're responding and they're getting baptized. So my time's done. There's no sweet way to end this. I'm not even gonna try to wrap it up. I'm just saying the more I talk about him, the more I, I just sense the Holy Spirit on his life. I'm I'm becoming more and more convinced that God's going to raise up forerunners now. That 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 the type of ministry John had, it won't be exactly like him, but it will be so similar. That before the coming of the king back to planet earth, there's going to be a a massive calling of those who will function as forerunners to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord, to turn parents back to their children, to be transformational in declaring the salvation of the Lord, the hope of the Lord, the light of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. But friends, I'm going to give you this. It's only going to come to those who will get separated unto him, consecrated unto him, that will be hidden to him in whatever way he designs. It will never come to the person who's casual about it. It's going to take people that'll get alone only with the Lord to imbibe from him what he's saying, to receive his power and his anointing. Those are the type of people that when he puts them in front of the pagan masses shackled in their sin and loving it. It is only a forerunner that will have the spiritual backbone to call them under repentance to the merciful king that wants to set them free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand up.